I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. You don't think that it's time that somebody cared enough to have a dream? Why are you getting so upset? This is not about you. Yes, it is. You are a human affront to all women, and I am a woman. At some point, you gotta decide for yourself who you are. Can't let nobody make that decision for you. How do you go about getting an exorcism? Beg your pardon? Hi, this is Mark Kermode. Thanks for downloading this Kermode on Film podcast. In a packed episode this week, we'll be opening the door to Hell's Video Store and looking at Zardoz, and I'll be speaking to some of the winners at the British Film Designers Guild Awards that happened just a week or so ago. I was very, very pleased to be the presenter of that award. But we start by welcoming another awards winner to the programme. Good evening. Uh, Stephen Woolley and Elizabeth Carlson have been out there in the wild west of independent filmmaking for many pioneering years, and as anyone here will tell you, it's tough out there. I don't think this next part is necessary, but before any further remarks, Stephen wants me to tell you that though it's true that in the cause of independent cinema, he was arrested in Genoa, Monte Carlo, Los Angeles, Soho, obviously, and, and Zagreb, He was never charged with anything. And anyway, he blames Elizabeth for Zagreb. She she sees it differently. Elizabeth Carlson and Stephen Woolley are amongst the most influential and successful filmmakers in the world. They have continued against the usual colossal odds to, to not only produce film after film, but to make films you might actually have seen and admired, several of which have entered the language. They have been at the forefront of politically and socially aware filmmaking without ever forgetting to entertain us. A fraction of their output, Colette, Carol, The Crying Game, Mona Lisa, Interview with a Vampire on Chesil Beach, Made in Dagenham, Great Expectations, Company of Wolves, Limehouse, Golem, and Their Finest. They have vigorously tackled the most pressing concerns that we face in the world, often before it was comfortable to do so. Their achievement is phenomenal, and their operation is conducted with decency, honesty, kindness, and dignity for themselves and those with whom they work. At no point has Stephen even considered cutting his hair. Few few things in my professional life has given me as much pleasure as does this opportunity to honor Elizabeth Carlson and Stephen Woolley. If you watched the BAFTAs, you will have probably missed one of the most important things of the evening, which was an award for Outstanding Contribution to British Film, which was presented by Bill Nye with an absolutely fantastic speech. And it was presented to Steve Woolley and Liz Carlson. Steve has been on this podcast before. Steve and Liz have an extraordinary CV of films that they've uh, made together. We're very pleased to say Steve is here for the podcast. Hello, Steve. Hi, Mark. Good to um, see you. Well, firstly, a great honour, and an extraordinary honour, wasn't it? No, it was It was a shock when we got the letter. I, I was genuinely surprised because during my tenure at BAFTA, I was 
slightly um, controversial, let's say. Um, <laughs> well, as opposed to your tenure everywhere else. Yeah, no, I'm, I'm, as you know, I'm very easygoing and laid back. But when, <laughs> when I was at BAFTA with Simon Ralph, we did, um, we split the awards. You know, it used to be TV and film. We brought them forward so that before the Oscars, we persuaded BAFTA to send out in those days VHSs because... Uh, there were no screeners being sent at that point. For anyone who doesn't know, a VHS is a video cassette, which was a, a thing that was popular in the age before DVD, which is now also obsolete. Well, I was about to say, some people <laughs> don't even know what DVDs are. Um, so we, you know, we did quite a lot of work, Simon and I, but Simon, who a, a brilliant, brilliant um, person and a, an amazing human being, was very, was genuinely very avuncular, and I was always the bad cop to his good cop. So when we got the letter... Um, saying we're we're giving you this this extraordinary award, I mean, outstanding contribution to British cinema, in the name of Michael Balkan, who of course is I'm a huge fan of Michael Balkan. Yeah. We were uh, staggered. It was it was uh, completely no surprise to me that they would give Elizabeth this award, but I, I was a little shocked that BAFTA would be. Um, giving me the award in particular. So um, now we, yeah. should, we should say that we, we had invited Liz to come along today, but unfortunately she's far too busy being running your film company. So. She's, yeah, she had a, a commitment she just couldn't, couldn't get out of. So, yeah, I'm afraid you've only got the, um, you've got the bad cop, not the good cop. OK, so at the very beginning of Bill Nye's speech, he began by saying that in the course of uh, supporting independent cinema, you had been arrested in a number of countries yeah. and yet never charged. <laughs> yes. um, my... I think the first time your name came to my attention was during the days of the Scala and also during the day, the days of the obscenity prosecutions against the Evil Dead. Mm. Um, was it Snaresbrook Crown Court that Palace stood up and fought and won mm. the obscenity prosecution against the Evil Dead? So you've got a long history of fighting with the authorities. Yeah, I, I suppose in the words of Clash, um, uh, I fought the law and I on, on occasion we won. You did. <laughs> Um, no, I, I think we've, we were. Remember, we were born into that time, or a palace was born into that time when British um, cinema was in the, in the doldrums, unlike now, where people are really flocking to the cinemas, which is fantastic, yeah. and so many great movies are being made and produced, and uh, you know, it's 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 actually kind of a boom 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 time for for movies and for audiences, but in the late seventies and early eighties, it was pretty much, I mean, creatively and. Um, uh, business-wise, not not a great place. You know, we we really had to shake up the business a little bit to yeah. begin with. I mean, the fact when we look back now and we see a movie like Sam Raimi's Evil Dead and we think that people were banning it um, shows the level of of disdain towards cinema yeah. that, that was existing at the time that no one could stand up and say, "This is a very well well made film by a very talented film director," and. Um, in fact, you know, I, I was looking at this week was Don't Look Now, which is being re-released um, yeah. on a on a beautiful new digitally remastered print, can, yeah. and I'm so happy for it because it is such a great movie. And yet, in 1973, when that was made and released, it was put out on a double bill with The Wicker Man and, and not really well thought of. Yeah. I mean, the critics got together and ganged up, and it did get its due uh, kudos that it deserved. But to think that a film like that was 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 being looked down at, I've it's always, I've, I've always, difficult. Weirdly enough, I'm kind of slightly nostalgic for the days that British Lion would put out "Don't Look Now" and "The Wicker Man" as a double bill. So "The Wicker Man" was the supporting film, which was cut down to whatever it was, 89 minutes. And you think, okay, you go to a cinema, the main feature is "Don't Look Now," and you have "The Wicker Man" first, and that's just the warm-up act. Yeah. I mean, what? I mean, what an extraordinary double what bill! What a fantastic double bill! And and. I, but but not appreciated at no, the time. No, I agree. Is my point. Yeah, and yeah, appreciated by you and appreciated by a handful of of 
of knowledgeable critics and and uh, by by a good section of the general audience who who went but uh, that's the, that was the scenario what what we walked into starting yeah. palace in in 82 so I, I i think the only way really for us to make our mark was to be somewhat controversial because we had to take on rank who didn't want to show diva because it was subtitled so we had to pay for the cinema ourselves because french movies didn't work and it did work we took on um, all the, we 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 got a brand new designer for the posters. We did every, everything that we did was um, breaking the rules in yeah. some respect. So I suppose being arrested for throwing snowballs in um, Zagreb, which was which was one of the crimes that Bill read out on the uh, on stage. <laughs> was the that the one Hall, that you blamed Liz for? That was definitely one I blamed Liz for because I was just getting off the arrest when she sort of jumped in the middle and had an argument with the with the arresting police officer. Okay. Who then took Adrian Evans and I off to a cell okay. for, to cool our heels and left her there. That was the other the the other hilarious moment of the throwing <laughs> of the snowballs. Um, we should say for anyone who hasn't met or heard from Liz, she's a force to be reckoned with and not someone to pick an argument with. No, no, she, she, she but, but, but quite cleverly, she um, didn't end up in the prison cell. <laughs> but you did. But I did for a few hours actually. So on the on the award, you're you're cited separately and together because together yeah. you run number nine films. What was the first film that you and Liz made together? Well, we did work on the Miracle together, Neil Jordan film. She's from abroad, you know. She's on the run. From the past. James was looking for love. Does your father know you're here? Don't care if he does. You should. Why? And now he's found it. She's not old. She's older than you. Playing hard to get. The first girl in his life. He thinks I'm dead. Has returned. Why did you come back here? Um, which partly I was making uh, Rage in Harlem with Bill Duke yeah. in um, Cincinnati. Um which actually Spike Lee remembered very fondly at the awards on Sunday, which was very nice. Oh, great. Um, but we were making Rage in Harlem. I, Liz had just joined the company. She hadn't been with us very long. And she had a kind of roving brief to be a part of all the productions with me. And so she went to Ireland. Yeah. And um, I joined her when we wrapped on Rage in Harlem. So that one we worked quite closely on, which was Neil Jordan's film. Um, and then we did The Pope Must Die, which is the classic film of the, many people. Sandy Powell did the costumes and won an, an Evening Standard Award for that movie. She won an Evening Standard Award for three movies. The Miracle, which was the first film we worked with Sandy on, The Pope Must Die, and Orlando. And somehow The Pope Must Die always slips off the CV. I'm not quite <laughs> sure why. Is it true that in America they had to change the title to The Pope Must Diet? Yeah, The Pope Must Die was, was apparently too controversial for the American release. Um, <laughs> so they called it The Pope Must Diet. Um, but it, it did get an incredible review in the New York Times, which compared it to great evening comedies. And uh, I, I'm, I, I really can't believe how... Um, it was, it was Vincent Canby gave it an amazing really like, five star review in the wow because Vincent New York Canby Times. could be sharp yeah and uh, so I, I've got a lot of, I've got a lot of time for that film also it was a lot of fun making it with Robbie so yes we worked Robbie on Coltrane. that Robbie Coltrane the great Robbie Coltrane anyway we worked on that one together and then you know that that time Palace was riffing through a lot of films we we did hardware mm -hmm. which elizabeth worked on yeah this was the um, first uh, richard stanley film and of course news has just broken that richard stanley who made hardware and dust devil and then started making sort of strange documentaries he's making his first feature film in 20 something years starring nick cage well after mandy i'm really <laughs> not surprised mandy i think is a little bit of a 
of a hats off to hardware actually if you ever have you seen mandy I'm yeah, sure of course, you yes, yeah of course yeah well mandy is 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 the kind of movie that that was inspired by hardware which yeah. which was a terrific little film um so we worked on that one together and i'm very happy for richard stanley he did the isle of dr morrow of course which yeah, he started well, yes yeah he started and didn't those. didn't finish but if you if you should read richard's diaries of the i think if anyone who hasn't richard's diaries of being fired from directing the isle of dr morrow and then going back on set disguised as melting dog boy uh, and, and watching the catastrophe unfold and only richard stanley would do that yeah. by the way yeah so um you know i think i think the idea of richard stanley and nick cage making a movie together is really properly exciting also hardware was one of the first films i was quoted on the poster so i do remember it very well because I, I think I got a copy of the poster because I, I liked it in Time Out, you know. So. Brilliant. Well, I'm glad. I'm glad we did that. God, I have no memory of that whatsoever, Mark. Um, anyway, so so Liz and I worked on that one together, and then um, we of course started on um, the Crying Game. Yeah. It's all types. So who's he? He's what she should run a mile from. Then why doesn't she? Who knows the secrets of the human heart? And we were, we were also shooting, um, we began st- shooting um, uh, Waterlands with Jeremy Irons and Steve Gyllenhaal um, directing and uh, Dust Devil, the other Richard Stanley movie, but neither of us were really em- embroiled in those. Yeah. We were sort of exec producing those. So yes, so Crying Game with The Soldier's Wife was the film that we, we were working on quite closely together. And then we did Little Voice later, which Liz, yeah. Liz, I exec produced and Liz produced. But I, I then did a few films for Warner Brothers. You know, I did Interview the Vampire, yeah, and then Michael Collins um, and Butcher Boy. So we kind of sort of did. I did a few films with Neil yeah. um, for Warner's, which was great because making films for the studio is just such a an immensely different experience from from the, the hard work of yeah. independent. As Bill said in the dark world of trying to make independent cinema, which is um, it's not as dark now as it was perhaps possibly then, but it, it is still quite tricky out there and, and there is a nice security working in the studio. The only problem with working in the studio, of course, you have to make films that they want to make. Yeah, sure. One of the things that Bill Nye said in his opening speech was that that you have constantly made films that address social issues but always do them, always remember that the audience is there to be entertained. And it is true that when you look back, I mean, just sort of recent examples made in Dagenham, which is a fantastically entertaining film but about a very, very important moment and a trade union moment which then spawned, uh, you know, a stage musical. You look at Colette, which is a, you know, a delightful movie to watch but it's about something very important. Actually, incidentally, I think it was... I think Colette was was overlooked in the in the awards. So I do think mm. Kieran Knightley actually should have got nominated. I thought that she was terrific in that. Yeah, well, thank you for that. But I, I can't help but agree. But um, you know, you have you, you always make films that have they mean they have some kind of substance to them. They're entertaining, but they they are about things. You are socially conscious. Yeah, I, I think most good films are, aren't they? I mean, even if you look at the classics that we all grew up with and and we loved, you know, Third Man is about something. Yeah, it's actually about something, and. I think most of the films we like are about issues that we uh, we want to draw people's attention to, as well as giving them a great story and great characters and, and motivation. All the all the other things that come part and parcel of a film, you know, if you look back on Michael Collins or you look back on Made in Dagenham or, as you say, more recently even Carol, they're they're about things. Yeah. You know, they're they're not they're not about things as a documentary might be, which just is pointing in one direction. They're yeah. about lots of things, I hope. But there's something to talk about on the bus. I mean, I know that sounds trivial and trite, but it always seems to me that if you watch a movie, you, 
you want to be talking about it on the bus on the way home. Yeah. You don't want to be dismissing it, even if you don't maybe not like it. I always remember we made a film called The Butcher Boy. And, um, it's a terrific film. We, we previewed it in America. Um, for some bizarre reason, it was made by the studios, uh, Warner Brothers, uh, after we did Michael Collins and Interview of the Vampire. And uh, the res responses from the preview, you know, sometimes with movies, you preview them to an audience and they, they give you little comments and, and remarks and scores. Yeah. And on this one, when we previewed it in America, they half the audience came out and said, I hated this movie. This was worse than Clockwork Orange. <laughs> and the other half said, I love this movie. They, th this reminded me of the magnificent Clockwork Orange. So when you divide you, you divide audiences, yeah. but there's no doubt that those people who have been talking about it on the bus on the way home. So I think there is, there's something about the, the films that we make that there has to be a grain of um, content, yeah. you know, and that, that doesn't have to be whacking around the head. I mean, as you said, Made in Dagenham, actually, you know, with tonight we're going to Oxford to do um, a talk with some MPs about um, equal pay and and followed by the performance of the musical which there's a there's a there's a theater group in oxford who are putting on the oxford playhouse yeah so which will be a real real i'm so excited to see it yeah. you know, i performed. love that film i just i thought it was you know punch the air stuff it was just really fab really really fabulous and i i, I thought it was yeah such a wonderful film such a terrific thing um in terms of you and Liz working together, do you is it equal on all films, or are there some films that she's leading on and other films yeah. that you're leading on? We we lead on. There's there's no point in crowding a director on set. So there's 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 two of us, and we're fairly um, both of us are fairly opinionated, and and <laughs> we tend to develop a relationship with each director. So for Lona Scherfig, for instance, um, I work very closely with Lona yeah. on on their finest. Um, their finest and Elizabeth worked very closely with Todd Haynes on Carol mm -hmm. and so one of us tends to be on set um, and we tend to develop projects some some more equally than others but generally we like if we like something together we'll start off the process yeah. and then we can hand the baton over if it needs be during the development um, for anyone that doesn't know about cinema, and I'm sure that many of the, your, the people who listen to you do know quite a lot about cinema, um, but in terms of development, there is no given time that a film gets made. You, mm -hmm. you can develop something for uh, five years, 10 years, 15 years, or maybe five months, or maybe a year or two. You know, something lands in your lap, or a great story, or a great script, and you're suddenly off to the races. But it generally doesn't work that way. You develop, you develop. Limehouse Golem and, and their finest we shot literally back to back. Yeah. I travelled from Swansea to Leeds and was on both those films with Bill Nye, yeah. who was in both the movies. But that, but that wasn't the plan. The plan was that Limehouse was going to go in the summer with Saoirse Ronan and Alan Rickman. You know, that was the plan. Right. So we had no control over Brooklyn suddenly taking off and... Uh, Saoirse's people saying well we're not sure about this summer and then suddenly Alan was unwell and then suddenly we're pushing ourselves into a, a new date and it's coinciding with the date of their finest so that's what happens we we think we're making films we thought we might be making two films this year probably we might make one film this year but we might end up with three films next year <laughs> so you know we we have to keep fairly much abreast of what we're doing yeah. but but it is true there are certain passions that Elizabeth will have um, Chesil Beach for instance was something that, that Liz was, was, was extremely passionate about and worked very closely with Dominic the director and um, Ian the writer and of course 
and I thought it was a brilliant, wonderful idea and an incredible novel. And you know, we so we we sort of double team all yeah. the time. And I think when when we're always ready to step into each other's shoes if need be. But and it's a system that kind of works for us. I mean, it is hard bringing it home every night. You know, you're always <laughs> we are constantly working. Um, but it's great to to it's it's you know as I said I've always said this you know one day I'll have to do a real job one day you and I'll have to do a real yeah we'll have to find a real living yeah just don't even um so as you said you know you and Liz are together and you have children together you have so you raised family together so you are living together all the time does 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 that ever affect working relationships have you never have you always found it perfectly fine to work with your partner I don't think any any relationship is ever perfectly fine um you know we have ups and downs and there's some sometimes it gets um sometimes it's 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 a lot easier than other times but (laughs) you know in terms of bringing the work home as it were but in a sense as i said you know i've always lived cinema it's always been Mm -hmm. what i've done you know from from as far as I can remember. Well, since as far back as I remember meeting you back in the 80s, that's... Yeah, know. and so when I worked for the Screen on the Green, I mean, one of the things I was able to say at the BAFTAs was to thank Romaine Hart, and I wanted to talk about the Kioras, which is a which is a very sweet orange juice, and how important it was to Romaine that we put the old Kioras on the top and bottom. And that really, really kept me instead, because the day she threw those bo- a box of Kiora into the lobby and they all burst and sent yellow... <laughs> piss-like strands up the, up the wall. <laughs> it's, I realised you've got to sell the Kiora. That was the week's profit, that box of Kioras. And Romain knew if she was showing Touch of Zen or Cassavetes movies or Tulane Blacktop, she needed to sell the bloody Kioras because yeah. she couldn't send them back. But the, <laughs> I, I remember way back from 75, 76, learning the lesson of basically producing, which yeah. is... And it always stayed with me, the Kioras. You know, you've got to sell the Kioras. You've got to not let them rot. And I think that um, we both love cinema and we both spend our time watching movies, whether it's Ozu films or whether it's um, old Ealing movies. So I, I, I've, I've never really felt that um, business and pleasure or whatever you want to term that as, I don't know, yeah. leisure, whatever it is, has ever been anything other than you know, whenever I've seen you socially, we talk about movies. I know. That's I know. What that do. That's, what, that's what we do, is, you know. <laughs> that's what we all do, as we've always done, and we'll continue to do into our, into our old age. So a few sort of last things. What are you, what are you most proud of that you've made? Um, gosh, that's difficult, isn't it? I think I really love their finest because it's part of the legacy of what we do as ridiculous filmmakers. I didn't mean what I just said. In any way, you said worse. It was a declaration. Stupid bloody fool was good. Did you think of that beforehand? Are you trying to pick a fight with me, Mrs. Cole? No. What I'm trying to say is that... If all of this stopped, the sparring and the jibing and the insults and the arguments, I'd miss it. Even if I were dead, I'd still miss it. Um, I love the ridiculousness of it, that that you make a film that is seemingly the most silliest thing in the world. 
Uh, and sometimes when we were making The Crying Game and we were doing some of the things we did in The Crying Game, I did think, are we doing the silliest thing in the world? Are we actually, what are we doing in the freezing cold Hoxton um, <laughs> with snot f literally freezing on my upper lip at four in the morning um, throwing goldfish out of a window? You know, there are moments on films when you think, not real goldfish, but no, 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 no. piece of carrot. Yeah. But you do think, what are we doing? Is this crazy? And somehow there's something in their finest which shows that cinema has a power beyond whatever we can imagine. And I think, um, I mean, I think Roma is an example of that. I think Alphonse Caron put that perfectly on Sunday when he talked about how we can make a perhaps a little change with cinema. Um, so I'm kind of proud of that. But to be honest, every single movie that we've made, you know, the end of the affair. Uh, certainly, um, I loved making Company Wolves because I loved Angela Carter and to make that kind of film. I mean, that's a film where we did often think, what are we doing? You know, I mean, <laughs> some of the stuff that Angela had written into the script with Neil was, was crazy. You know, babies popping out of eggs and giant tears smashing and foxes' first stalls coming to life and wolves turning into men and men turning into wolves it was it was bonkers so i saw an on-set thing in which it was something like you only had four trees to make the forest you had to keep moving the trees around <laughs> it was more it. than four but it felt like four trees after the end of it yeah, and the bits of polystyrene kept coming off the bottoms um but yes no uh, so each film that we've made there are moments where you're actually so exhilarated by achieving something you'd aimed and also at the same time quite uh, sort of taken aback by the absurdity of what you're, you're yeah. the adventure you're going on. So it's it's always very very hard for me to sort of pinpoint one movie. I think we all tend to go for the. I, I, I remember when we made Mona Lisa and people loved it so much, and I I I felt very strongly about that film, partly because I come from that similar Bob Hoskins character's background with my dad and growing up in the fifties and uh, early sixties in 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 London, you know, literally that five of us sleeping in one room and, mm. and my dad learned to read in a in a prison library. So, you know, there was always that association with that East End Cray Brothers. My mum worked in the Cray Brothers clubs. So I knew about that world. It sort of infringed somewhat on my world. So making Mona Lisa was always a very um, interesting experience for me. What does it matter who it is? It's me and a piece of meat! Just tell me his name. Anderson. That's Anderson? Jesus, why am I doing this? Because I asked you. No, 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 no. Because you like me. You fancy me. But having me is nothing, George. Any prick can have me. Shut up. I'm screwed by old men so fat I have to lift myself onto them. <gasps> Don't hit me, George! Nobody hits me. They can have me, but they can't hit me! <laughs> Just fuck I did. Every day, every hour, every day. Whatever the hell is Understand, do you? No, I don't understand. But when we opened that film, everyone would come up to me and say, Wow, Lud Mon Lisa, shame about absolute beginners, wasn't it? I always felt protective about absolute beginners because I thought, Well, you yeah. know what? It might be a bit of a mess, and I know that Julian did this, and I know that we did that, and we, you know, it kind of veered all over the place and it's a bit sloppy. But there's certain things I love about absolute beginners, and I suddenly had this 
in this weird place where people were always fondly telling you about this particular child. Yeah. But that child, oh, what a shame, you know. <laughs> and it's like we'd made the bad child and the good child at the same time. Um, and so I always kind of feel when the question is asked, which film do you feel most proud of or which one? And all you can think of is, well, actually, so many of them you feel certain amount of emotional connection to. Yeah. And even though I resist it with all, with everything in my heart, in a way, Absolute Beginners has got this kind of pull. I just want to protect it yeah. whenever I swear. And it's not, you know, I'm quite happy to lounge around and talk about the bad bits of Absolute Beginners, but there's some great things about Absolute Beginners. And again, it's about the Nottingham riots in, mm, yeah, in yeah. the 50s. And it, it has its heart right in the right yeah. place. And it's, and there's some, and for about 10 seconds, things. the jazz defectors are in it. That's right. Who were, who were a really big thing at the time. And not to mention Slim Gaylord, yeah, yeah, who was yeah, fantastic. Yeah. And Sade's song is amazing. And David Bowie's participation was incredible. And it's one of his greatest... Yeah, you made a film with David Bowie. I mean, that's something that you want to put on your tombstone, right? And Absolute Beginners was a great track. Yeah. So, you know, I kind of feel that we all suffer this in, in, in what we do as, as filmmakers, is that we always have the good and the bad you know what's yeah. the best uh, it's like if I put you on the spot and say what's the greatest film ever made well I'll tell you it's The Exorcist well <laughs> so which rather diffuses that argument it does a bit doesn't it yeah <laughs> I, I was I wouldn't funnily enough you see I wouldn't have thought The Exorcist would be the greatest film ever made but I would definitely put it in my top 20 great horror movies yeah sure it's, 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 it's a whole problem I think that we try and genre and package and make things the best and the second best and the third best. Oh, look, I know. I mean, I, nothing I, really no, is. No, I know. I, it, it's it's all absurd. But the thing is that for me, it's the one that I've gone back to the most and which has never let me down. Yeah. As Hunter Thompson said about Nixon, never let me down. <laughs> <laughs> all right. So there's some very final things, Steve. Um, in Bill Nye's introductory speech, he said, and all the things that you've done and been arrested, that you've never once complained and once gripped, and you've never cut your hair. And you've clearly cut your hair. It's a bit shorter. I, I know, I know. You I, used I, to walk around with this, like, this gigantic this, this ponytail. huge ponytail. I, I felt bad about that. I didn't know Bill was going to make that game. Remember the first see? time I ever saw you without the ponytail bunched up? You looked like the wild man of Borneo. It was, <laughs> it was hair everywhere. Like, is this is this the beginning of respectability? No, no. I, I just did it for the awards I, I, I had a bit of um, you know someone said oh you should get your hair cut a bit and I sort of trimmed it a little bit I, I had no idea Bill was going to say that I would not have done it if I'd known <laughs> um, but yeah I, I, uh, coming back to the awards it isn't about the, the top things is it We how many no. great movies are there that didn't get awards and, yeah, of course. and I, I think that it's it's lovely to win an award but you know it's also lovely to celebrate cinema I started compiling in my head all the great movies that didn't get nominated and of course prompted yeah. by Colette which still is a thorn in my side a little bit because um, I think there's so many great things about Colette not least of all Kira's performance but also wonderful design and wonderful music and yeah. fantastic stuff in that movie that didn't get there and then I thought well you know Sorry to Bother You, another film that didn't get in there. Yeah, and then yeah. I started thinking about, oh, and Burning didn't and get in And Leave No Trace. And Leave No Trace. Nothing anywhere. No. And yet for me, you know, I, I just loved that film. Yeah. Nothing. I mean, you and I can compile a, an alternative list of five of those, yeah. five great movies and five great performances, etc., etc. So you do know that when you're sitting there and it's the crying game and Stephen Ray is up best actor and Al Pacino wins, you think... Al Pacino, of course he should win. Godfather 2, Panic in Needle Park, Serpico. He doesn't. He wins for Scent, Scent of a, a Woman. woman. So, <laughs> uh, 
where's the logic you know so so awards let's let's yeah. all take awards with a pinch of salt and yeah. i'm i'm celebrating ours and and i'm very happy about it and it's wonderful but i sometimes think it might have been a clerical error i'm sandra and i'm just the professional your small business was looking for but you didn't hire me because you didn't use linkedin jobs linkedin has professionals you can't find anywhere else including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role like me in a given month over 70% of linkedin users don't visit other leading job sites So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com/people today. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com/trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. The great Stephen Woolley and once again congratulations to Steve and Liz Coulson on their award for outstanding contribution to British cinema. Caution, caution. You are approaching So time now to dip our toe into a regular feature here at Kermode on Film. I'm running two series. One of them is 2001 Movies You Must See Before You Die. The other is Hell's Video Store. And today we look at Zardoz. Zardoz speaks to you. So just as a little bit of background in case you don't know about Zardoz. Zardoz is a 1970s science fiction movie directed by John Borman. And I should start by saying that over the years I think I have been unfair to John Borman. John Borman has made many very brilliant films and I have always been cl- kind of cruel to him because of the fact that he directed Exorcist to The Heretic which for my money is the worst movie ever made but I do think that I have been unfair about his career however Zardoz is a real problem see people always complain that when critics give people bad reviews it's bad for the film industry And I've always felt that actually good reviews do more damage than bad reviews and Zardoz is the reason why. Here's how it works. John Borman made Point Blank, which is a great film, Hell in the Pacific, Leo the Last, and then he made Deliverance. And Deliverance is one of the most important films of the early 70s. It's based on the novel by James Dickey, who also wrote the screenplay, and it is a really, really powerful and brilliant film. And it opened to powerful and brilliant reviews. Many of those reviews said that John Borman wasn't just a great filmmaker. What he was was he was an artist. He was an auteur. He was somebody who had transcended the cinematic form. And as a result of the success of Deliverance, Borman was allowed to do pretty much whatever he wanted. Sadly, what he wanted to do was Zardoz, a film which he made with his own production company and which for I think the first time in his career was working entirely from a script written and generated by himself, whereas before, for example, if you look at Point Blank, that's based on a novel by Donald Lee Westlake, if you look at as I said before Deliverance, that's based on the James Dickey book and the James Dickey script. Zardoz 
is something that John Borman had nurtured himself. In fact, I think the roots of Zardoz go back to a time many years before when he was developing a film version of Lord of the Rings, and it didn't happen because the studio thought it was actually going to be impossible to make Lord of the Rings. In fact, of course, it wasn't until years and years later that Peter Jackson made the Lord of the Rings trilogy, which was only possible because of CGI special effects. But Borman became fascinated by this idea of a kind of fantasy other world, and he came up with Zardoz, and he made the film on his own terms, in his own right, in his own way, and it is one of the worst films I have ever seen. You came here in the stone head. I don't know. It is the only path and passage into the vortex. You will show me how you come to be here. The other example, I think, would be Michael Cimino, who, after making The Deer Hunter, was told by everybody that he was a genius, that he was somebody who really understood cinema better than almost anybody else, and he should make whatever he wanted to make, and he went away and he made Heaven's Gate, a film which pretty much destroyed United Artists. So, Zardoz, 1970s. Here is John Borman coming off the back of Deliverance, completely surrounded by brilliant reviews, and he comes up with this science fiction story set in 2293, the post-apocalyptic world. And picture, if you will, this post-apocalyptic world. In the outlands of this world, we have the Brutals. The Brutals are ordinary people who are being policed by exterminators who worship a giant flying stone head, which comes over the horizon, lands on a beach, eats grain, spews out weapons, and announces, the gun is good, the penis is bad. And I'm not making this up. You have been raised up from brutality to kill the Brutals who multiply and our legion this end Zardoz your god gave you the gift of the god the gun is good the penis is evil the penis shoots seeds and makes new life to poison the earth with a plague of men as once it was but the gun shoots death and purifies the earth of the filth Sean Connery is Zed, an exterminator. Sean Connery's job is to, well, exterminate, to exterminate brutals, to keep their numbers down, but also to provide grain to go into Zardoz's stone head, which will then fly away over the horizon to who knows where. Well, actually, the where it's going to is the vortex. The vortex is the place where the Eternals live. The Eternals are aesthetes. But they're also impotent, and somehow they have developed a perfect society in which all they do is look after the ideas that mankind has come up with over the years and apparently eat grain, while Sean Connery, dressed in a red leather nappy with thigh-length boots, bondage straps, and a village people moustache, trounces around in the outlands, exterminating brutals. So... One day, Sean Connery climbs inside the big stone head because he wonders where it's going and it flies over the horizon and it takes him into the vortex, into the land of the Eternals. Now here, he meets Charlotte Rampling and Sarah Kesselman as Consuela and May. One of them wants to kill Zed, the other clearly wants to have it off with him. Why? Well, because the Eternals have become impotent. There is no need for them to reproduce anymore because they are, as their name suggests, eternal. However, they've also lost their lust for life. And so, in a scene which really has to be seen to be believed, 
Sean Connery is tied down to an examining table whilst Eternals dressed in purple velvet doubloons attempt to give him an erection. Yes, you heard that right. Penic erection was one of the many unsolved evolutionary mysteries surrounding sexuality. Every society had an elaborate subculture devoted to erotic stimulation. But nobody could quite determine how this becomes this. Of course, we all know the physical process involved, but not the link between stimulus and response. There seems to be a correlation with violence, with fear. Many hanged men died with an erection. You are all more or less aware of our intensive researches into this subject. Sexuality declined, probably because we no longer needed to procreate. Eternals soon discovered that erection was impossible to achieve. And we are no longer victims of this violent, convulsive act, which so debased women and betrayed men. Just imagine the scene. Sean Connery, red leather jockstrap, thigh-length boots, bondage straps, village people moustache, and that dialogue. So what then happens, of course, is that Sean Connery and his penic erection cause havoc in the world of the Eternals, and inevitably he brings about a revolution, a change. How does he do this? Well, one of the ways he does it is by falling inside a large crystal in what is possibly the worst falling into a large crystal scene anybody has ever made. I mean, it is, it's sheer pantomime. Connery, remember, had made Bond. Connery had this huge international reputation as a result of being James Bond, and clearly he wanted to do something different that would put Bond behind him. Well, falling very badly into a huge plastic crystal while dressed in a red leather nappy wearing thigh-length boots is something that would absolutely throw away the memory of James Bond. The worst thing about Zardoz is this. There are bits of it that are somehow weirdly brilliant. I've had this argument with Ben Wheatley. Ben Wheatley, who directed things like High Rise, absolutely loves Zardoz. And the reason he loves it is he thinks that it's a science fiction film with ideas. And certainly, if you go back and look at the reviews of Zardoz when it first came out, many highbrow critics tried to argue that it was a very important, very grown-up, very interesting film. It's not. It's a very unimportant, very uninteresting, and very, very childish film. And that, for me is the big problem with it. It's the work of somebody who I think thinks that they are above science fiction deciding to make a grown-up science fiction film and ending up with Sean Connery in a red leather jockstrap, thigh-length boots, bondage straps and a village people moustache. There are stories that Stanley Kubrick was one of the unofficial technical advisors on the film, and if so, wow. I cannot imagine how Kubrick managed to stifle the giggles in the editing room as Borman showed him early cuts of Zardoz. No, I will, I will not go to second level, no. no. Oh. Now, today, it has become fashionable to reassess Zardoz, to say that it is actually something that sits in the pantheon of exciting sci-fi movies. I have seen Zardoz six times, and I know it's six times because I have counted every time thinking, this time, it's going to look better. This time, it's going to look interesting. This time, I'm going to understand why it is 
that people like Ben Wheatley and many other people who I really, really admire think it's a great film. I mean, it has cinematography by Jeffrey Onsworth. Some of the production design is quite dazzling. And you have to hand it to John Borman. It is a film made by somebody making exactly the film they want to make. Sadly, it's still Zardoz. This is Mark Kermode. You're listening to the Kermode on Film podcast, and we'll be returning to Hell's Video Store in a few weeks' time. Now, a week or so ago, I hosted the British Film Designers Guild Award. It was a terrific award ceremony, honouring the people who make movies look as good as they do. One of the themes of the evening was the fact that some audiences and critics don't fully understand what production designers and art designers do. And it was, for me, a real eye-opener to meet and talk to the people who make the movies. Well, afterwards, I caught up with a few of the winners. Here's just a little bit of our roundtable conversation. I'm here at the British Film Designers Guild Awards 2018, which I've just had the great privilege of uh, presenting. What a terrific evening it was. And I'm at a table with a group of the winners. If I can ask everybody, just uh, tell us who they are and which award they have won. John Meyer, Mary Poppins Returns. I'm Fiona Crombie from The Favourite. Gordon Sim from Mary Poppins Returns. Sarah Wham from The Children Act. Uh, Nara Moroni from uh, Mary Poppins Returns. Astrid Sieben from The Children Act. And Peter Francis from The Children Act. So congratulations to all of you. One of the things that was brought up tonight was that it was considered that perhaps audiences, and I have to confess critics, don't exactly know what it is that film designers do. And there was a talk at the beginning in the introduction about raising the awareness of what film designers do. Do you all feel that there is a need for the craft to be more widely recognised amongst audiences and amongst critics? Yes, well, absolutely, yeah. I, I, I do think so, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't. I don't think that people realise what uh, production designers and art directors do. What do you think people think they do? Uh, I don't. I don't know that they they realise what they do at all. I think the whole point is that um, they shouldn't. They don't know what we do because it's. Um, they hopefully believe in what they see on the screen, and they don't realise actually that what goes into creating what goes in on what, what you see on the screen and um obviously that from contemporary to fantasy uh, fantasy obviously is a bit is slightly different i guess but um i think i think that i think there is a growing definitely a growing um knowledge and interest certainly in what goes on in, uh, in the making of films because i think certainly there's a lot more um the making of and all that sort of thing, that sort of has brought, I think it's brought a lot of attention to um, production design and how films are actually made. So obviously people begin to realise there is something going on, um, but hopefully, in a funny way, you don't want them to notice mm. it too much. But again, it purely depends. You want to, you want to suspend the people in the, in the belief that they are, that, 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 that we've created a reality, be that a fantasy or a reality real. <laughs> one, of the, sense. one of the phrases that was brought up tonight was that the best review you can get for production design is for nobody to mention it, because if you do your job seamlessly, then it doesn't get noticed. And it's compared to editing. People say, if you notice mm. the editing, then it's not working. Um, what's, from each or any of you, what's the job that you are most proud of having done and that has perhaps been the most invisible? I'm not ready yet. <laughs> I'll, be, I'll be number two. 
Oh, I think um, in terms of the favourite, we did a lot of invisible sort of construction that you know hid lots of things and drew the eye away in a way from the sets. You know, we were drawing our eye to the actors and to things that were, you know, we felt needed to be seen. Um, and so, yeah, we spend a lot of time and money building things that you're not meant to look at. So maybe that's... Can you, know. you give me an example of one of those things? Again, yeah. again bear in mind you're talking to critics, so consequently I know nothing. Yeah. So give me an example that somebody that I would understand. Okay. Um, in the Great Hall scenes, uh, we built an enormous wall that ran the length of the Great Hall. And it was because the upper part of the wall was bright yellow. And I knew that that would mean that all you did was sort of look up, you know, it would just throw, any light would bounce off there and it would just compete. So we built this massive wall, we painted it into the wood panelling. We did a trompe l'oeil and it's basically disappears. All the, it just drops to nothing. And that is bringing your eye to that black and white floor, to the people that are dancing. And so it's an invisible piece that was, yeah, quite big. I had, I had a lot of interviews after the film came out. Yeah. And one of the questions that was continually asked was, where in the world did you find a street to shoot on for 17 Cherry Tree Lane? <laughs> yeah. And I guess that is a lovely compliment because, because we built, we designed and built a street at Shepperton Studios. And we designed all the facades and the cherry trees were full size and the park was there across the way. Uh, but it was something that most people, it feels in the audience, felt was just a street we found in London. So that is that is nice, actually, that, that, that we did something that people felt so comfortable with that wasn't a distraction, but, it, but it, it had all the elements of this magical street that would lead you into Mary Poppins' fantasy world. I had a, a, a strange experience with because I, I, I love Mary Poppins. Like, I love Mary Poppins. Like, I really love Mary Poppins. <laughs> and I was really concerned about, uh, about the sequel, which I also really love, but there was a good ten minutes at the beginning when I was terrified, am I going to love it? And one of the things that really reassured me was that I felt I was back in Cherry Tree Lane. And I, I wonder whether, if you, when you were on that set, did it feel like being there? Because I know it's all the magic of the movies and all the rest of it. When you were physically on that set, did it feel like what I think Cherry Tree Lane should have felt like? Yeah. Oh, yes. Well, it was a 360-degree set, so you could wow. walk in and look around and see it. Uh, something really fun was we started shooting it with the winter look. So we shot for two weeks with all these giant 35-foot-tall cherry trees with bare limbs, all the bushes bare. And then through movie magic, the crew went away. We had two weeks to bring in branches that had over 900,000 cherry blossoms individually hot glued on branches to bring the cherry trees to life. We put in flowers over through all the bushes, added in all the greenery, wisteria on the buildings. And it was in the winter at Shepperton, and it's very cold, and the crew had spent two weeks and got to know this kind of cold winter set, and I wanted to really surprise them. So as they walked through the doors, even before they saw the set, we had hidden buckets of hundreds of rose petals. So in this cold winter, you walked through this door, and there was this whiff of rose petals, and we had trays of cut grass, and the smell of cut grass just made you think of spring. And when you came onto the set, with the flowers, the cut grass, and we had the sound of birds chirping coming from the park. And so it was this real transformation of H stage at Shepperton from winter into spring. The, the other job that we have is to make the actors feel like they're genuinely part of the, yeah. that, that they are in their comfortable environment. I was talking to one actor and he said, you know, it's really difficult sometimes you turn upon a set and you don't feel like you're 
it isn't how you imagined or yeah. it isn't you don't feel part of it so I think talking to actors um, as well before you get to that point when you're still in the design process is a really useful tool because it helps us as well actually because it gets a, 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 it gets into their heads it gets us into their heads and gives us a, a, a direction to go as well which is really helpful Okay, I'm, I'm aware that everybody wants to go off and have a drink uh, uh, because it's been a sort of fantastic evening. So I'm going to ask two last questions. Firstly, have any of you worked on a movie that I have been really horrible about? <laughs> Probably. <laughs> <laughs> and second to that, do you mind what critics think about films? Does it matter at all? Do you do, do you do the thing about reading reviews or do you just do the sensible thing which is to ignore them because critics don't know anything? I think we read reviews, but I think you have to feel that you just did a film for your own you know, personal um, enjoyment and that you're happy with the work that you, you, you did. I mean, I, we certainly feel that way on Mary Poppins that we just were so happy with what we did. It, it couldn't have gotten any better than that anyway. I feel very so. proud of what we did. Yeah. That's me talking to some of the winners from the British Film Designers Guild Awards that took place a week or so ago. Now, one of the standout moments of the evening was presenting a Lifetime Achievement Award to Stuart Craig, an extraordinary man with an extraordinary career. He's been the production designer on films including The English Patient... You're wearing the thimble. Of course. Dangerous Liaisons. I became a virtuoso of deceit. The Harry Potter movies and now the Fantastic Beast movies, and of course, David Lynch's The Elephant Man. I, am not an elephant. I sat down with him after the ceremony, but first, let's hear from him receiving his well deserved Lifetime Achievement Award. I'm embarrassed and thrilled. Thank you very much. My first job was Casino Royale back in. Uh, 1985. It was an appalling mess of a film. <laughs> with five different directors, two, three studios in use, a casting couch, the script for most of the time non existent. Sets were built but never shot on. The celebrity saucer, a large flying saucer built for Frank Sinatra's guest appearance. Um, a large flying saucer. Uh, Frank Sinatra and other celebrities, actors may be passing through. Nobody came. <laughs> it was a wonderful initiation for me and a learning curve. There followed Alfred the Great, another epic failure. <laughs> <laughs> Inspector Clouseau. I worked on Inspector Clouseau. It was the one without Peter Sellers. <laughs> <laughs> Then I did Butch and Sundance, the one without Paul Newman. <laughs> Mel Frank's A Touch of Class was the first success I worked on. A funny, elegant movie, A Glimpse of a Better World. My first job as designer was on Saturn Three. My second was The Elephant Man. And I've enjoyed the great luck, good fortune and relationships with directors and the, above all the quality of scripts ever since. So I say to young designers, you young designers, go firstly for the quality, let the subject matter come second. And uh, uh, all of this has been a journey to this point tonight. Thank you so much. 
I'm very, very honoured indeed. Thank you. Stuart, thank you so much for joining us. Um, just a wonderful uh, response in the room to your Lifetime Achievement Award and the most extraordinary career. How did it, how did it feel tonight? You gave a lovely speech, and, but it was such a warm feeling in the room. How did you feel in front of all your peers being celebrated like that? I didn't see any of my peers, really. I, did. I think there, there was a, a warmth uh, in, in the room. What I should have said, I suppose, is that there's so much talent here now in this country, in the movie industry particularly. We had huge numbers of uh, carpenters, construction people on Harry Potter. Um, and the skills that these men demonstrate every day and just you all take for granted, that they're amazing actually. So London, England now is a kind of hothouse for these ideas to, to spread. People do official and unofficial apprenticeships just by being around and skills get passed down from generation to generation. It's um, prop makers, sculptors, scenic artists, art directors, draftsmen. It's absolutely uh, rich with skill and uh, depth of pedigree too. It's, uh, it's a great time and a great place, a great film centre. You said in your wonderful speech, you said it's quality first and then content second. You said, what did you mean by that? It's so easy to get seduced by a, uh, an idea, somebody pitching a, a movie, um, and it's it, it, if you love vintage cars, or the, you, you, and there is a film including that, you can be seduced by it. You fall easily into the trap of doing something you like because you like the period or the, the hardware or whatever it is. And it's very difficult sometimes to, to say no to that kind of thing and take something which is evidently has higher quality. And choosing quality over content is quite a common uh, mistake, really. That takes for granted that you you have a choice. There have been lots of days, years in the film industry where there was no choice, there was no job. But that's uh, not like that now. It's a boom, boom time. Thank you so much. I think that's probably a, a lovely note to end on. Can I say to everybody, thank you. It's been a wonderful evening. Congratulations to all of you. Um, I'm very proud that you uh, had me to, uh, to uh, uh, host, and I would love to come back again. And uh, congratulations to everybody, and thank you. A few highlights there from the British Film Designers Guild Awards, and thanks to all who won or were nominated, and thanks for sitting down to have a chat with me. If you've enjoyed listening to this Kermit on Film podcast, then remember to subscribe. And if you've missed any of the previous episodes, they're all available to download now. If you want to get in touch, the best way is through Twitter. My Twitter handle is at Movie. Thanks for listening. Keep watching the skies. Normally, being a little extra can be a bit much, but when it comes to healthcare, it pays to be extra. 
and United Healthcare makes it easy with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they supplement your primary plan, helping you manage out-of-pocket costs without the usual requirements and restrictions like deductibles and enrollment periods. So when it comes to covering your medical bills, you can feel good about being a little extra. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you.